Okay, I guess a good place to turn would be Romans chapter 1, verse 17. We're going to do a run-up to Romans 8 today. I realize that it's important to do this before actually teaching Romans 8, which is the climactic phase along with Romans 11 of our teaching of Romans. So that's just a point of reference. This will be kind of a distillation of everything from Romans 1 up through to Romans 8. So I'm calling it a run-up to Romans 8. And we'll be discussing just what is it to live in this turn of the ages, this dramatic time in history and a time in which God has staged a double expedition into this evil age. Just how do we live in this turn of the ages, this eschatological moment in history. Romans answers that question as well as all the other deep questions. So, Romans chapter 1. A very important birthday is coming up. Brianna, whose birthday is coming up very soon? Jesus' birthday, that's right. I've been quizzing her on that, see. (laughs) Brianna Messick is... Uh, She was born in this ministry, grew up in this ministry, and today she turned 21 in this ministry. So, happy birthday. I wasn't going to do birthdays anymore, but I just had to. You saw your smiling face down there. and If you got that wrong, you'd be in deep trouble. So I kept asking her in the hall, hey, there's a big birthday coming up. Who's, you know? And then I said, it's Jesus' birthday. No, she got it. You realize the tremendous responsibility on you. It's awesome responsibility. You grew up in the ministry. So be strong in grace. All right. That's our, our job. Be strong in grace. There's a great scholar named Abraham Heschel. He's a Jewish scholar and he had a profound influence on Jürgen Moltmann, especially in convincing him and through the scriptures, through the prophets mostly, that God was not a God who was beyond suffering. That old doctrine of the medieval times called impassibility, that God is unable to suffer or unable to experience suffering, that he's up above it all and doesn't have that kind of identification with humanity. And he discovered and demonstrated, especially through Hosea and the scriptures, that that's quite the opposite, that God is indeed a, a God who suffers. And we know this more now than ever in our Lord Jesus Christ, a man who is acquainted with sorrows and griefs and, of course, knew the ultimate sorrow of abandonment on our behalf and for us. Abraham Heschel wrote a book, a famous book, really, called God in Search of Man, which really puts kind of things in order. God in search of man, and he wrote this. He said, if Judaism had relied exclusively on the human resources for the good, on man's ability to fulfill what God demands, on man's power to achieve redemption, why did it insist upon the promise of a messianic redemption? Indeed, messianism implies that any course of living, he said, this is what I want to emphasize today, any course of living, even supreme human efforts, must fail in redeeming the world. It implies that history, for all its relevance, is not sufficient of itself. Now, Romans, the epistle, is fundamentally concerned with just what God-approved livingness is, and that's what I have abbreviated or given an acronym for, God-approved livingness, becomes more and more important as we continue in the word. Romans is actually fundamentally concerned with just what God-approved livingness is, especially knowing what time it is. Romans chapter 13 and 11, you knowing the time that is high time, to put off the deeds of darkness and to put on the armor of light. This is the light that we have on while we read Romans. It's the armor of light against the darkness. In this case, the darkness is another gospel. 
It's a pseudo-gospel, and they abound today. This one is the root of all of them. So in studying the true gospel with the armor of light over and against the false gospels of our time and darkness, this is what we get from reading Romans. Throughout Paul's exposition of God's messianic gospel, which is the gospel about God's son, it's all about God's son, not only for the redemption of the world, but for the livingness and the course of living that we're called to live. Ultimately, our living has a subject. When anyone lives, they are the subject of their living. They say, I live. The subject of that very brief sentence is I The action is live, I live, I am the subject of my living in that sentence. But what about Paul saying, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Do you realize that the subject of his living is now Jesus Christ, the subject of his living? And yet he says, and yet I live. I was crucified with Christ, and yet I live. It is no longer I who live. That is, it's no longer I who am the prime subject of my livingness, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't frustrate the grace of God. So, throughout Paul's exposition of God's Christ-centered gospel. He emphasizes that any course of living, even supreme efforts, including obedience to the commandments of Torah, fail to meet with God's approval. When Jesus came to John the baptizer to be baptized, the heavens opened up as Isaiah prayed that they would tear open the heavens and come down and deliver us. He said in Isaiah 63, 19, 64, one, the heavens were torn open and a voice that split those heavens said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That means my maximum approval is on him. God supremely approves of his son, Jesus Christ. And God supremely approves of his obedience to the extent of death on a cross. Jesus Christ's obedience was to the father's will. Happily for us, his will was the salvation of all humankind. And he said, I will do all my will. First Timothy 2, 3, and 4, Isaiah 46, 10, just in case you want some documentation. I always want to rock you with the documentation. God supremely approves of his son, Jesus Christ, and with his faithfulness to the extent of death on a cross. Moreover, God approves of a course of living call it living or livingness, as I've been calling it, when his son, and only when his son is the subject of that living. So you may say someone is a good person and they live a good life and their self-sacrificing service is apparent to all. Be careful in judging self-sacrificing service. Be careful not to down-judge it, because it just might be Christ in a person. But be careful not to approve it too soon, because it just might be someone hiding their own curvature in upon themselves, in which they do something to seek the glory and honor of men. And Jesus said to his enemies, I don't seek honor from men. You do, he said. You do, but I don't. And so there are so many things, in fact, almost everything ought to await when the Lord comes, who shall judge the intents and the motives of all people's hearts, and bring to light all things in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Until then, 
Why labor under the tremendous responsibility of judging? People are tremendously burdened under that burden because it's something only God can do. So, I'll say this again because it's the run-up to Romans 8. God supremely approves of his son, Jesus Christ, and with his obedience to the extent of death on a cross, so much so that he rewarded him with life. Not any old kind of life. Not even the kind of life that he had before his death, but a life out of death. A life that is specifically a victory over the death that reigned from Adam until that moment. Christ was born under the law, the scripture says, and the law was hijacked by sin, the scripture says. God, the Christmas message says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That little phrase, born of a woman, accentuates his humanity, even though he's divine. And that little phrase, under the law, accentuates the fact that he partook in all of the human predicament including the enslavement of humanity under sin, even though he was sinless. And he became in his death a curse of the law in order that the blessing of Abraham may come to all the nations. That blessing of Abraham is none other than the Holy Spirit, as we're going to find in Romans 8 again and again. So God is also approved of a course of living, a kind of living and livingness when his son is the subject of the living. The thesis verse, Romans 1.17, and you have it in front of you. I'm not necessarily going to read my translation of it, but it quotes Habakkuk, one of those prophets that Heschel was so expert in expounding. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. In Romans 117b, it's the primary text from the writing of the prophets that Paul uses in his argument throughout Romans. And he interprets that text messianically, that is, with Christ as its heart and center. The righteous one who lives here in Romans 117 is Christ. Paul interprets that text messianically to use Heschel's language. The righteous one who lives is Christ. Happily for us, Christ not only lives a life from the dead in resurrection because of his faithfulness. Happily for us, he lives in us and we live by his faithfulness. This is a course of living, borrowing Heschel's language, which is lived in participation with the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved us. And so it's a faith that works by love. Messiah's love. He loved us and he gave himself for us in the most benevolent and beneficent expression of God for us all. And so Paul is very exercised about this because if any other gospel that puts forth works in any way for justification is allowed to survive, then its announcement is that Christ died for nothing. For Paul, Christ died means everything. For me, it means everything. And I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Something you can say, something we can say. A course of living lived in participation with the Son of God. So the text of Romans 117b is generally construed this way. The righteous shall live by faith. That's very vague on its face. The case can be said, and indeed has been made, that the primary reference is to Christ himself. I think that case has been made by now. He's called the righteous one explicitly in Acts 22, 8 and 14. The one who said, I am Jesus the Nazarene to Saul of Tarsus at the moment of the apocalypse of 
Christ in Paul's life. I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you persecute. Ananias interpreted that for Paul later, and he said, it has been God's will that you would see the righteous one and hear the words of his voice. The righteous one is Jesus, the Nazarene. My righteous one, the righteous one, shall live by faithfulness. This descriptor is also applied to Jesus in 1 Peter 3.18 and 1 John 2.1, both of which identify Jesus in connection with his atoning death. He died, the righteous one, in behalf of the unrighteous, which happens to be everyone else, all the human race in Adam. In 1 John 2, 1 and 2, he's called the expiation of the sins of the world. The one who put away and removed the sin of the world, the Lamb of God. Habakkuk 2, 4 then is interpreted Christologically. That's how we'd say it. In its primary sense. And this is clearly brought out in Romans 3, 26, where God justifies his royal representative, Jesus Christ is his royal representative born as a descendant of David, according to the flesh designated and declared to be son of God by resurrection from the dead through the spirit of sanctification or the Holy spirit, the main player in the spiritual life and the main mover. So three twenty six, the righteous one whom God raises and justifies is Jesus Christ. In Romans 3.26, justifies carries the sense of vindication. He vindicates his son, who was judged and crucified by men. The Christological interpretation is brought out again in Romans 6.7, where justification has the sense of liberation. Vindication, then liberation. Liberation from sin. And it describes Jesus himself as the liberated one. The one who died and the one who was liberated from sin. Because he was made to be sin for us. In behalf of us. So that we might be made, not declared righteous, but made the righteousness of God in him. At 2 Corinthians 5.21. In Romans 8.34, Christ is explicitly identified as the one who died. The one who died. Capitalize O-N-E. Because he dies as a representative of all humankind. The one who died. And more, moreover, it says he is the one who was raised from the dead and who intercedes on behalf of those for whom he died, which is an expression of God being for us all. God is all for all of his creation, always. That's the promeity of God. Previous to the quotation of Habakkuk 2 4 and Romans 117 B, Paul writes in 116 to 17 A, and I'm Laying emphasis on this passage because it is properly the thesis verse for the whole of Romans. In 116 to 17a, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And the reason he's not ashamed, he goes on to say, of this gospel, because in it, the righteousness of God is apocalyptically revealed from faith to faith or from faithfulness, God's faithfulness revealed in Christ to or for Christ's faithfulness revealed in us. That's how I interpret it. To everyone who believes the gospel is perceived in a certain way. We taught this on the most controversial message of our 
teaching in Romans, which I don't ask you to believe. I ask you to lay hold of your own convictions on all the things that I teach, but especially Romans 10. We underlined it with 1 Timothy 4.10. God, our Savior, is the Savior of all human beings, especially of those who believed, not exclusively of those who believe. But to those who believe, the gospel is perceived by them, understood by them, seen and even experienced by them as the power of God for salvation. Even now, it's seen and perceived by them. Faith becomes the means of perceiving that the gospel is the power of salvation. So to those who believe, whether a Jew or a Greek, doesn't matter. Paul says, which covers all kinds of humanity, all of humanity. Whether Jew or Greek, Jew or non-Gentile, or non-Jew, Gentile, who believes that he or she is justified by the righteous act of God in Jesus Christ. The faith he's talking about is faith that we are justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Not our faith justifying us, but our faith is in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that justified us. There's a big difference between these and The difference is so enormous that it distinguishes two different Gospels in our day. One is of the light and one is of the darkness. There's no compromise between these two Gospels. There isn't one. There is no compromise. And so to anyone, whether Jew or or Greek who believes that he or she is justified by the righteous act of God in Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ's faithful death, followed by his resurrection. Those who believe that that's where their justification lies, to them the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That means they not only perceive it as that, they begin in some measure that you can actually see and measure in their hearts. It is the power of God unto salvation unto deliverance from the power of sin, unto deliverance from the power of the law which has been hijacked by sin, unto deliverance from principalities and powers who hold sway on sometimes even the best people as they're perceived by non-faith. So it is the gospel is perceived and experienced by those who believe, by those who God has created faith in or gifted with faith. It's perceived and experienced in some meaningful measure even now as the power of God for salvation and the power of God for a livingness that's approved by God. The righteous one whose death occurred at the apex of his faithful obedience to God, his father, lives because he was resurrected from the dead And his resurrection itself is a dramatic sign of his father's approval of his life and his sacrifice and his faithful obedience. Because Jesus was obedient even to the extent of death by crucifixion or death of the cross, Philippians 2.8. Then God highly exalted him. Because Jesus was obedient even to the extent of death by crucifixion. Obedient to his father's will to save all of humanity and liberate and transform all of creation. Because Jesus was obedient to that will, God highly exalted him by a process that began by giving him new life. A new kind of life that had never entered the sphere of of this world before a life that conquered death, a life that was born out of death, a life that ended the reign of death that reigned from Adam to that moment in Christ. That's the kind of life that characterizes what we call the Christian life. Otherwise, it's not really life at all, but Christians with an improved life trying to be good for Jesus and to impress people and to be honored by people and to gain the prestige of people and then to get, well, I'll 
I won't get into the things that preachers do to get politically active because that would just offend a whole new other kettle of fish. I don't need to do that. I've already crossed some lines. Because Jesus was obedient or faithful, God rewarded him with life. The righteous one then shall live by, by his faithfulness as a reward of his fidelity. But thankfully, so will all of us as a reward for Messiah's fidelity. That's called grace. Peter never said we're saved by faith. And Peter, when he got it right, and he got it terribly wrong at Antioch, as we may find out in Galatians, terribly wrong in Antioch. Where he got it right was when he stood up and went to the plate, as it were, in Acts 15.9, and he said, those Gentiles you're arguing about, we believe that they will be saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just like we are. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, his self-giving act on the cross, his faithfulness. Later in Acts 15, that was 15.9, in 15.11, he goes on to say that the heart is purified by faith, purified by faith. 1511 and 15.9, in there, those two, he says both of those things in one order or another. He talks about grace as the means of salvation and faith as the means of the purification of the heart. When God gives us faith, he purifies the heart from us trying to do anything to justify ourselves, for one thing. He purifies the conscience to serve the living God. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purify your conscience from dead works in order to serve a living God. The blood of Christ did that. The blood of Christ also in Romans 5, 9 is the justifying power of God. Therefore being justified by his blood, how much more will we be now saved from wrath by his life? a sharing of his life and his livingness. Hold the thought together all the while today that our living a so-called spiritual life in this juncture of the ages requires that Jesus Christ is the prime subject of that living and that we are swept up in it and live our lives now by the faithfulness of the Son of God. And you don't get these insights by doing what ministers are supposed to be doing according to a plan and a program set by man under human tradition. You get these by burying yourself in a study and you don't come up for air until you get the insight. That's where you get these things. And the Holy Spirit gives them. It's all a matter of grace. But it is a matter of studying to show ourselves approved unto God in order to accurately handle the word of truth, the gospel of truth. And so the father exalted Jesus by a process that began by giving him new life out of death, a process that will not culminate or come to its fullness until every knee bows in humble adoration to him. Every knee until every tongue praises Yahweh as Yeshua and pledges allegiance to him. The righteous one lives, and his name is Jesus, because of God's faithfulness and because of his own faithfulness, that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, which is one translation, means that God's righteousness, which is his saving act, in the case of Jesus, is revealed as a demonstration of God's faithfulness in Christ, which then leads to, ekpistios leads to, ace piston leads to Christ's faithfulness in those who share in Christ's livingness. And that life that we have is none other than a life out of death, a life that has been victorious over death, over the reign of death, which reigned from Adam until Christ. People in this world are so desperate in the living of a life that's not conquered death that they want so much to conquer the enslaving powers over them. 
They get so weary of this life that they get even suicidal because they want to escape the life that isn't life. And the escape is really to have the life that has conquered death, which is only in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I became extremely weary of a life that I lived. But now I live a life in which Christ lives. And he's the prime subject of my living. Don't get me wrong, I'm still in there. Because any glitches, any stupidity, any trip-ups and any sins, that's not Christ in me. That's me. (laughs) That's me. So then... As Adam, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Romans 1, 16 to 17 then is deployed. And I use the word deployed as a military term because when Paul quotes a verse or cites a verse, he's deployed it on a field of action in a theater of war. This is war. In 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. They're not carnal. They're not humanly manufactured weaponry. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of fortresses, real fortresses, strongholds. And in the case of Romans, barriers that segregate saints. It's deployed by Paul in what we call a dialectic of contradictories. And, and we have discovered this, and my translation of Romans will show this. I'm going to write where the teacher's talking, the opponent's talking, where Paul's talking. A missionary opponent, and he is a missionary, and he is a Jewish Christian missionary. So is Paul. But a missionary opponent propagating a gospel, use that in air quotes, which Paul regards as no good news at all. We'll see him get really hot under the collar in Galatians about this. This missionary opponent proclaims that though Christ died, that little word though, Gentiles or Greeks must be circumcised and they must be obedient to the commandments of Moses' law, as Jews also must, of course, in order to be pronounced just or righteous. On the final day, that day out there, God's going to render a verdict of justification if you were obedient. Now, some people say that requires a perfect obedience. Other people say, well, God stacks up your good works against your evil works. And if the stack of good is better than the stack of evil, then he pronounces a sentence of justification on you. If your stack of evil is higher than your stack of good, then... You're damned. So you were damned if you did and damned if you didn't. You're just damned. And that's their gospel, damn it. That's it. Paul's gospel says not though Christ died, we still need to work. Paul's gospel says because Christ died, we all died. And because... The righteous one lives because of his faithfulness. We all live because of his faithfulness. Jesus said it in his usual succinct and laconic manner when he said, because I live, you will live also. Because I live. That means in a life that has conquered death through resurrection, you will live also. The you should belong to the capital U universally and uniformly to all humanity. But he's speaking primarily and first to the disciples and to us who have this life now as a kind of a forecast and foretaste and preview of things to come for the universe of humanity. We're a kind of first fruits, you know, we're not everything. We're a kind of first fruits of God's creation, God's new creation. We're a first fruits God has begotten us by his own will, not ours, to be a kind of first harvest, first cut of the harvest of a universal creation. That's James 1.18, just in case you're wondering. So this missionary opponent is opposed to Paul. A lot of what he says is quoted by Christian theologians as if that's the truth that Paul expounds when what they're doing is quoting as their own truth the truth of an opponent of Paul. 
That's true of some of the biggest heavyweight theologians of our time who actually subscribe to these to this missionary opponent's idea that our lives, even our Christian lives, we don't really get a pronouncement of justification until the final day. And they are adopting not Paul's view, but the view of an opponent of Paul. They are adopting and preaching not Paul's gospel, which is the gospel of God about his son, but another gospel, which ain't no good news at all, however you slice it. In fact, it's a cursed gospel. It's a cursed gospel. That's why I said it's a damned gospel. It's a cursed gospel. Thankfully, I'm glad God cursed any gospel that's not the true good news. I'm glad. What if he let them get semi-approval? That's why God seems to be harsh in many places in the scripture, because he is judging that which would eventually be destructive to his creation. Harshly. What he did to sin is perfectly horrible. You wouldn't do that to your worst enemy. God did it to his worst enemy and yours. By allowing his son to become sin, he put away sin, annihilated sin, made it not to be, made it a non-entity altogether for all humankind. That's the good news. And if you really want to be a preacher and preach this good news, don't you think that it's a fun thing? Because you're, you're kind of proclaiming against the grain. Not only of this evil age, but of religiosity in this evil age, some of which bears the name Christian. To Paul, eternal life is the life of the coming age, which has already invaded the present evil age with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To Paul's opponent, eternal life is inherited as a reward for obedience to the law of Moses. That's why the rich man came to Jesus and he said, what must I keep doing in order to inherit life, in order to inherit the life of the coming age? He was looking right at the one and addressing the one who inherited it for him and for all humankind. So Jesus pressed the issue and he said, well, you know, the commandments. And he said, well, I've done all these commandments from my youth up. He's kind of like pause, but I'm blameless according to all those things. And what Jesus said is all those things blameless, even if you were blameless in all the commandments of the law, it still wouldn't justify you. He says, you're still lack something. Go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come after me. He would have keep pressing this and pressing this because it's never enough. It's never one thing you still lack. You still lack. What, the final thing I lack is that I'm not Jesus who sold all that he had and gave it to the poor. He who was rich became poor for our sake. He's talking about himself, that we might be Wealthy beyond the imagination through him. That's Christmas. Merry Christmas. God rest ye, merry gentlemen. We rest in peace. It's put on graves, but put it over my life. Because I died with Christ and now... To be in a spiritual life that is actuated and motivated by the spirit of Christ who's raised from the dead is life and peace. So rest in peace. God rest ye, merry gentlemen, meaning you gentlemen are uh, agitated about something. Well, may God rest you, give you rest, make you peaceful. That's actually a pretty good Christmas carol. It's a lot better than baby, it's cold outside, I'll tell you that right now. Now. Some people are offended by that song because it seems like the guy's a little too zealous and the girl's a little too protesting and everybody's extremely upset about that now and for good reason in many cases. I'm against the, the song just because it's just stupid. 
And I'm, but that, I'm sorry for that because I know some of you love the song and can't wait for hear Dean Martin sing it again or somebody else. Everybody that's ever sung a song sings it and makes money off it. So, sorry. So then, to Paul, eternal life is the life of the coming age which has already come and it's experienced in some meaningful measure right now to those who believe, to those who believe. To those who believe. John says the same thing. Believing we have or experience in some full measure, in some meaningful measure, not the full measure yet. We experience in some meaningful measure the life of the coming age. The alternative is to perish, which means to believe another gospel and make yourself the subject of your living and never quite have enough. Always lack something. To Paul, the reward of justification in life is calculated on the basis of the uncontingent grace of God. To his missionary opponent, eternal life is inherited as a reward for obedience and justification is pronounced if you're obedient to obey the mandates of the law on the last day. To Paul, the reward of justification and life is calculated on the basis of pure, uncontingent grace of God through the grace or obedience of Jesus Christ, also spoken of as Jesus Christ's blood in Romans 5.9, and later, the one righteous deed of the one man, Jesus Christ, in Romans 5.18. The opponent and his gospel, always air quotes around that little word, gospel, is fundamentally put into action. That man and his gospel is fundamentally put into action by the adversary named Satan. So the ultimate battle here is between Christ and Satan, Christ and Belial, with whom there is no common ground. What do we have in common with you, the demon said to Jesus? Have you come to torture us before the time, they said. And Jesus said, shut up. You're acting as if God comes to torture people or sends people to a hell of torture, a torture chamber. Like that king. If you don't like Bud Light, you're going to the pit of despair. Oh, you don't like my son? You're going off to be tortured forever and ever and ever. The demons believe that. So do a lot of preachers. I don't believe that. I don't think God's a torturer. I don't think he is the master of a dungeon of torture. I don't, really don't think he is. In the measure that you think he is, is the measure that you despise what Jesus Christ endured on the cross for all humankind. You despise it. You're an enemy of the cross. of. There's no compromise here. You are an enemy of the cross of Christ. That's Philippians 3.18. So the opponent and his gospel is fundamentally put in action by the invisible adversary. Why do you think Paul said to the Roman saints, God shall crush under your feet Satan very shortly. What do you think he's talking about? That false gospel that has caused divisiveness and wreaked havoc among you in, the, in Rome as it has in Galatia is going to be defeated by the gospel of the Son of God that I'm preaching to you. And in that way, the adversary will be put under your feet. He'll be crushed into pieces under your feet, who has crushed you into pieces in your little divisions and biases. Satan is the author of another gospel and the actuator and promoter and empowerer of its preachers, even if its preachers have power to knock people over one by one or a row of dominoes in their services. The power isn't God. The power is the adversary's power, and it advocates another gospel that is a gospel of cursing that puts people under the curse of always lacking something and always spinning their wheels in a pseudo-Christian life. The opponent, this unmasks the real proclaimer of that other gospel. Who is to be trampled under feet by the Roman saints shortly. To the opponent of Paul's gospel, justification or rectification 
want to call it that, is to be given as a reward for the righteous deeds which we have done on the day of judgment. And wrath will fall upon those who have not done sufficient righteous deeds. According to Paul's gospel, good news indeed, the judgment on all human beings will be, and in fact already has been done, to be universally manifested in the last day. Will there be embarrassment of some people on that day? Yes, they'll be terribly embarrassed because they spent all their lives advocating against the gospel of the universal horizon of redemption in Christ Jesus. They'll be embarrassed for a minute on the last day. Paul said, yes, on that last day, all will be judged. Then he says, but according to my gospel, it's through Jesus Christ, who by his death, which occurred at the height and depth of his faithfulness, demolished sin as a superhuman enslaving power over all humanity and over the law itself and annihilated all the sins committed by all human beings in collusion with that power called sin. Sins plural means that every act of collusion that you and I committed with sin as a power was also wiped out. If you want to hold people's sins over them, you can go ahead if you want to. I don't recommend it. God doesn't. Titus chimes in well to summarize Paul's view on the matter in Titus 3, 4 through 7a, which says, when the philanthropy of God appeared, he saved us. When the philanthropy of God appeared, he saved us. When did God save you? When his philanthropy appeared. When did his philanthropy appear in Christ and him crucified? That's how much he loves us. When did he save us? When God's philanthropy appeared. But then it, he does it, he makes it be realizable individually in every individual case through the bath of regeneration given to us by the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out generously to us. By grace, you have been saved. Our being saved in this life in which Jesus Christ is the prime subject and will be justified in the future also. So justification, as it's called, and rectification, as it should better be called, is more than just a legal fiction. You have it forensically imputed to you, but now go ahead and sin and rebound, sin and rebound, live on a trampoline for the rest of your life in a total frustration of the grace of God. No, that's not what it is. The Bible does not speak of justification as a legal pronouncement and therefore a fiction in which the person really isn't in any way rectified or set right or made right. It involves making a person righteous. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin or was made to be sin so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. Being made the righteousness of God is to be conformed by an act of God into a people who are approved by God. This act is an act of rectification. Making right what was wrong. So this is all a run-up to Romans 8, and we'll... Move into the next gear now. For Paul, rectification or being brought to a state of rectitude, God-approved livingness. Being brought to a state of God-approved livingness is not something that occurs in the last day at the last judgment. Nor is it just a legal pronouncement upon believing. It's something that occurs even now, but then in a state of bodily resurrection, completely. A total rectification by bodily resurrection. In that sense, rectification is a setting right. It's an ongoing action being performed by God in all the universe, all the cosmos. And in people in particular in whom he has gifted faith with whom he has gifted faith, or to whom he has gifted faith. So at odds in Romans the epistle, and I mean total odds, are two ways of living. 
and that which we're calling livingness. Primarily, the righteous one who lives by faith or faithfulness is Jesus. Secondarily, but very importantly, the one who is righteous in Christ Jesus, by being crucified with Jesus and therefore sharing his history, dying and being raised with him to newness of life, newness of life, not your old life improved, not your old life or your old man, palaios anthropos, saved and improved, but a new life altogether that's shared in union with Christ, the life that God gave to him, a life that conquered death. That's the new life. That's the newness of life. That's the only life in which we serve God acceptably in the newness of the spirit, the newness that the spirit keeps new. It's always new. Put Romans 6, 4 together with Romans 7, 6 on that one. And so the law, Paul calls the letter of the law, which is the sin hijacked law, is a, a ministration. That's an old word, but it's actually the best word for it. It means it's a distribution center for death. It distributes death. Death is simply the old life continued. And so to be determined by the flesh is death, but to be determined by the spirit is life and peace it is a life in which you R.I.P. You died and your life is now hid with Christ, so R.I.P., rest in peace. God rest ye, merry gentlemen and gentlemen and all the other 61 genders so that I don't use the wrong pronoun and get stoned to death in the village square. You say, where'd you go? Oh, yes, a teacher was recently fired because he used the wrong pronoun to describe whom he thought was either a boy or a girl. Used the wrong pronoun on him. So offensive was it? They fired him. So don't be surprised that they start to hang people in the village square who don't conform to the new Phariseeism, which is a new kind of political and cultural correctness that's so vicious and so evil that it gets down to the thoughts and in the intents of people. And if they don't line up to your sense of correctness in the old man engineered by Satan, you're, just, you're, you're done. <laughs> I almost said you're sent somewhere. The one who is righteous in Christ Jesus is secondly refer, re, referred to as one who's crucified with Christ, died with Christ, raised with him to newness of life. She lives or has her livingness in the spirit now by faith. We, through the spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness, which means we wait for the expectation of the rectification of all the universe by faith. Because circumcision doesn't mean anything, neither does uncircumcision. So I could even say gender pronouns don't matter either. There is no male or female at all in, Paul, in, in Christ in Galatians 3.28. So God eradicates all that silly new Phariseeism of cultural correctness and political correctness and all that stuff you got to walk around and don't dig your heels in because you're walking on eggs everywhere you go now. So, God's already eradicated all that stuff, all the stuff that makes for all that bitterness and hatred and vitriol and all the rest of it. What a mess. And so now, the righteous one who lives by faith is primarily Jesus and secondarily us in participation with him. We have died and been raised with him to newness of life. Ephesians 2.5 doesn't just say God took you while you were dead and gave you life. It says God made you alive together with Christ. So that life is a kind of life that lives out from death. It's a, de it's a life after death. It's a life that conquers death. It's a life that is not any longer than subject or enslaved by sin or death or the elements of the cosmos, as it's called in Galatians. So I'm going to close by jumping over 
four pages of notes, three pages of notes, and quote a couple things I got from another friend of mine that I never met because he's dead, but he he's alive. His name is Ebeling, or if you're Dutch or German, Ebeling. Gerhard Ebeling, he wrote a book called The Truth of the Gospel. And I love to read these things because they're not to me, not just reading, they're a conversation. It's a collaboration. We, I go into a dialectic with a mostly agreeable one with him, not all the time. But he says a few things about this life, and I'll just quote you a couple of things he wrote in his book called The Truth of the Gospel. He wrote, dying with Christ, being crucified together with Christ in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. This has taken place in a single, unique event, he says. All we can do is hear the call to think of ourselves in these terms. That's what Romans 6.11 says. Reckon yourselves to be dead. Know that you're crucified with Christ. It's a matter of perception, faith's perception. The next thing he says is life before death has been replaced by life out of death. The life that we have in Christ Jesus now is not the life before death. And so we live a life and we fear death. No. In fact, I love the way 2 Corinthians 7, 3b goes. I like it as a greeting. We both die and live together with you. You are in our hearts both to die and to live. He doesn't say live and die. He says die and live. The life that we have in Christ is a result of dying than living. It's an after death. It's life after a death. The more you understand this, the less you fear the thing called physical death. It really, it becomes to you almost nothing. It's those who hear my words and believe them, those who hear my words, Jesus said in John eight fifty one, will not experience death. They won't see death. They aren't going to experience physical death as a traumatic thing. It'll be the final exhale here and the first inhale there with the Lord. So life before death has been replaced by life out of death. Again, we find a convergence of death and life in consequence of relationship with Christ, he writes. In common usage, living and dying are antithetical. They're the opposites. In Christ, they constitute a single whole. W-H-O-L-E. Strictly speaking, no sequence is involved at all. One does not follow upon the other. Each refers to a particular situation from its own standpoint. The fourth thing he says and I skipped the first one for another week. He says, in this eschatological perspective, he contrasts what it means to be in Adam. We go back to Romans 5 for this in the run-up to Romans 8. And what it means to be in Christ. He could easily distinguish between the life we have in Adam and the life we have in Christ. But instead, he describes this Adamic life as death. And life in Christ as life from death. For as in Adam, then he quotes this, for as, that, as in Adam I'll die, so also in Christ shall I'll be made alive. Now here's the run up to Romans and we'll close with this. And I put here ARK in my notes just to remind me that it's me talking now. This is you, Rick. This isn't Gerhard Abeling. This is you. Your mother was an Aberly, but not an Abeling. Her name was Aberly. So I, I read all these guys that are Abeling and Eberhard, and I realized that Eberly was short for Eberhard, which means ever steadfast. And so I said, do you think I'm ever steadfast? And God says, not at all. But my unique son is, let him live in your life. Let him be the subject of your living. And all our lives on this earth, from the moment we are gifted with faith to believe in Christ to the moment we exit, because death really isn't anything, because we already died and live and live a life that's conquered death. So what's physical death? Something that's already been conquered. I look forward to it, but I'm sure not going to do anything to bring it about more speedily, like act stupid or preach the gospel in such a way that it unmasks the uh, false gospel. <laughs> I don't want to do that. That might speed up the process. 
That's called irony. In closing then. So, Adamic life is death. And so what does Romans 8, 6 then say? To be determined or directed or controlled by the flesh with a capital F, which is to live in the Adamic life, is death. It is death. And life in Christ, which is determined or controlled or empowered or actuated, however you want to say it, is life from the dead. So being controlled by the spirit of Christ is life and its peace. It's life from the dead in which we rest in peace. R.I.P. Write it over my head. Rest in peace. Now you say, does that mean you're always in peace? No. It means I'm in a war. And it means that you're in a war and that we're in a warfare. And the, the weapons of our warfare are mighty. And it means that we experience, as Paul did, some normal anxieties, some agitations, some terrific things in life, perplexities, sufferings, griefs. But we're only identifying with the one who knew grief. So to be alive in Christ, this is me, is to be made alive together with Christ and to have Christ's own life. In this change, the self doesn't remain the same while something about the self changes. Once I did this, now I don't do this. Thanks to Jesus and Chantix. This thing's going to help you overcome that. Side effects, bleeding from the eyes, nose, mouth, and every orifice of your life, falling dead with cancer, being contagious to everybody in your community, wiping out the world population. But you might quit smoking. No. We're not talking about the self remaining while something about the self, like a habit, changes. The self dies. The new subject is Christ who lives in me, the new self. Not an improved self, not a more consecrated self where I take myself down to an altar and consecrate myself and dedicate myself and surrender myself to God. But an entirely new self actuated by Christ himself, a new self that has a life out of death, Not new life for the old self, but death for the old self and life out of death, life that conquers death for an entirely new person. So here's the fifth quote by Ebeling, and I'll close with it. He said, it would not be adequate to describe the change in situation as a change of religion or a conversion with the self simply remaining the same. Once I was a Muslim, now I'm a Christian. Once I was a Muslim, now I, the same self, am a Christian. I've changed religions. What's that do for you? Nothing. It's not conversion to another religion. While the self simply remains the same, which only changes its focus and its view of itself. He goes on to say, neither would it suffice to describe the change that has taken place here as a change of the locus where life is grounded, where it's fixed, and where it makes its home. According to Paul, I know this, I called him up, better call Paul. Five, 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 five. According to Paul, we need to use the terminology of the most radical change that can affect mortals. Death and new life. In other words, it is not the self that remains while something else changes. Instead, the self which remains identical with itself as long as it lives experiences the only change that can impinge on it directly. It dies. So I'm saying this in conclusion. All of this refers to a life lived extra nos, outside of ourselves. Extra nos, outside of us, Latin. Extra nos. Apart from our old selves, we have to face the question then, does that for which we truly live, 
or that for which we live, does it truly transcend the self or simply hide the fact that we are twisted in upon ourselves by an external observance, which is called curvature in ad se, curvature in on ourselves. Much today that is seen as self-sacrificing service to humanity or to otherwise, to God, really is a self twisted in on itself, doing something for its own glory and recognition by others. This is entirely contrary to Jesus Christ being the actual subject of the living and service of Christ. The subject, capital S, of our life and livingness said in John 5, 41, I do not accept glory from men. And in John 5, 44, he says to his opponents, how can you believe? How can you believe? While accepting glory from one another, you don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. In John 7, 18, Jesus said, the one who speaks for himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. So here's a practical tip for us. Sometimes that which is perceived by others as self-sacrificing service, which they may brag about or give testimonies about and make you feel inferior, is really a self hiding the fact of its curvature in adesse, which means its curvature in on itself. But on the other hand, sometimes that which is perceived by others as self-sacrificing service to God and others really is Jesus Christ doing and speaking in someone. Really. Paul himself is the paradigm of this. In 2 Corinthians 13, he says to the Corinthians, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, he says, he is not weak toward you, but powerful among you. In fact, he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by God's power. For we also are weak in him. Yet toward you, we will live with him by God's power. Test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize for yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you fail the test, it doesn't mean if you fail the test, Jesus Christ isn't in you. You'll fail the test if you, rec if you don't recognize that Jesus Christ is in you. And I hope you will recognize, Paul said, that we are not failing the test. So, hey, tetelestai phalanx, let's examine ourselves and leave the judgment of everyone else to the Lord. When he comes, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. First Corinthians four, five B father. We thank you for the challenge that we find in the word. And we thank you that though we have discovered the magnificence and the unlimited horizon of your saving grace and kindness in Christ Jesus, that this has not eliminated a challenge from us at all. It has only accentuated and stressed the challenge upon us.